the National Archives podcast series, Big Ideas, Rapid Response Collecting, presented by Helen Wakeley. Well, uh, make a start. Thank you very much for coming. Um, and we're delighted to start with a bang with a, with a fantastic speaker, Corinna Gardner, on my left, who's going to be um, opening the 2015 Big Ideas Talks. And Corinna is Curator of Contemporary Product Design at the Victoria and Albert Museum. And she joined the uh, newly established Contemporary Architecture Design and Digital Team in January 2013, so just a couple of years ago. And since then, she's been working with colleagues to introduce this, um, this particular um, method of collecting, which she's going to talk about today. Um, rapid response collecting is, in fact, a new strand to the V&A's collecting activity, and one that's responsive to global events, which situates design in relation to moments of political, economic, and social change. So it sounds completely fascinating and of huge relevance to a lot of the work that, that people are doing here. So um, on that note, I'll pass over to Corinna. Thank you very much for coming. Um, my colleagues this morning were asking me how many I thought might turn up for this talk, and I thought, well, either it's a way to think this is the new year, the new resolution, great ideas, this is how I'm going to go forward, or it's the best way to stay away from those emails for that little bit longer. <laughs> so either way, you're very welcome, and thank you. So rapid response collecting. As um, Val said, I've been in post for two years at the Victoria and Albert Museum, and I'm part of a new team that is contemporary architecture, design, and digital. I'm thinking that most of you have been to the V&A, so I'll take on a few assumed um, pieces of knowledge. But the museum, founded in the 1850s, has had an engagement with the contemporary from its very outset. But over the 150-plus years of our history, how we engage with the here and now has changed. We have geographically specific departments. We have materials-based departments. But there are things that have begun to fall through the, way, through the, um, the gaps. And so a number of years ago, there was this drive to treat the contemporary with the same academic rigor in the collection side of the institution as the historical. Now, of course, prior to our arrival, the museum has had a contemporary team in post, but their responsibilities were more with the ephemeral, so exhibitions and events. So that's the kind of shift that's been brought about. And one of our great privileges has been to come as a new team and think afresh. Nobody's done our jobs before, so we had a great a deal of scope to open out how we might look at the contemporary world. And rapid response collecting is the first major output of our team, major being a relative term, as you'll see as we keep going. But So we've termed what we're up to rapid response collecting, but you could also call it the politics of things, and another way to look at it might be design and public life. For us, design and architecture is about the everyday. It's about how we live together collectively. And we have an institution, or we work in an institution, where there are millions of objects. Um, and we thought very hard about what we would do, but we're very conscious that there are 25-plus curators already at the institution dealing with contemporary practice in some form, though their expertise spans a much greater number of years. We're the only team with an expressly contemporary. I haven't, in my two years to date, looked at anything that's older than 10 years, so very, very um, contemporary. There are plenty of pots and chairs at the museum, so rather than looking inwards to see or what has not been collected to date, we took it upon ourselves to look outward beyond the museum to see how design and architecture has a relevance in our shared and collective lives. Um, 
the rapid response is about social, political, economic change as articulated through material things. And so the most recent acquisition we have made is 23andMe. It's a personal or home genetic testing kit. Um, it's a company that's based in California, part funded by Google, which seeks to harness the capacities of the internet and advances in genetic um, science. Of course, there is this question of using collective community-based data to generate new insight. The thing that made it interesting for us at a given moment in time in December was it was launched onto the British market. In 2013, it was banned in the US because the company could not um, verify the accuracy of the information that was being sent or how that information might be useful in the public domain. Um, it's still not um, marketed successfully in the States. And in the UK, it's sold as an information service as opposed to a medical product or a di diagnostic tool. So it's these, this for us is a piece of digital design. It's about how the internet is coming and influencing the capacities of the internet have that potential to influence our lives. Um, one of the earliest acquisitions that we made is um, the world's first 3D printed firearm. So this is Cody Wilson, a law student as he was then in his mid-twenties who has forever changed how we understand distributed manufacturing technologies. Um, he released a file online for a digital file for a firearm. Um, it was downloaded many thousands of times before two days later the State Department in the US requested that he remove it. Um, we immediately knew that this was an object of design historical value. Uh, my colleague Louise Shannon, who's our curator of digital, went to Texas to meet Cody and we very rapidly Hence rapid. Um, I'll come back to rapid because it's a term that has been understood in different ways and it's made us think quite a lot. Um, she went to see him within the month of the, its release and via one of our acquisitions funds secured the firearm that was sh the first ever firearm that was shot. It's of course an interesting question because it's a digital object, the point of which is its multiple reproduction. And so why are we as an institution buying the first? It's another thing that we can maybe come back to in the discussion. But Louise went secured these objects, but then we found out at some length and to our cost that a plastic firearm is beyond or was beyond the current f legal framework of the law. Um, and given that we were acquiring it with a fund that, what's the word I'm looking for, make sure it requires that we display it during the London Design Festival. Um, and we couldn't actually get the gun across the pond. So um, we, in the end, ended up printing a version here in London and that was a challenge in itself because it was a very hot topic still a few months later. Um, many 3D printing companies here wouldn't print it for reasons of it's a firearm. Others were cautious because they didn't have a firearms license, manufacturing license. Um, in the end, we worked with Digits to Widgets who are really interesting, very engaged intellectually with the subject of what they're up to. Um, they printed it, but you'll notice here it's in two different materials. The gray is plaster. And then they also altered some of the dimensions. A, we would never be able to put it together. And B, plaster is incredibly brittle. These kind of trials and tribulations of how we brought this object to the museum for us have very much contributed to our understanding of what the object is and how we can talk about it more broadly. So this is the gun arriving um, once the State Department had changed its laws. 
near a year later, so this last autumn, it's rendered fine art object, of course, through transport. And this is the fired weapon which we now have on display in our galleries. And actually to see one of these firearms, it's called the Liberator, to see the Liberator as a fired unit um, is actually quite unusual, it's quite hard to do because most people are not brave enough to fire a plastic gun. Um, but anyway, so this was one of the objects around which our thinking for rapid response collecting crystallised. We wanted to bring objects into the museum at a moment in time when they were in public discussion. To kind of the museum as a whole, an institution, is of course a place of repository and scholarship, but we also want the museum very much to increase its place as a host for discussion where you might go to recognise yourself or some of the issues that are in the news more broadly. Um, the firearm, I mean, it was quite a controversial acquisition, I should say, um, and Ron Arad, who's a very established London-based product designer of a world reputation, um, still a year later was discussing how he felt it a very problematic acquisition for the museum to have made. And I think, again, this is about raising questions about what museums are for, but also what design museums are for. We as a team are clear that the sinister needs to be addressed and looked at and studied just as much as the beautiful and the aesthetic. And I think how you understand what design is is in part implicated in those thought processes. Um, so to come on to how we do rapid response collecting and what it actually is in the museum, rapid response collecting is about acquiring objects into the permanent collections of the V&A. We have to justify their acquisition just in the same way as a colleague might a 17th century inlaid table. There is no distinction between a Hogarth print and a set of Katy Perry eyelashes in terms of how we bring things into the collection. Um, we, we have seven miles of galleries at the V&A, something I've learned quite recently. Um, but each and every inch of that space is full or owned or contested by our colleagues in a very creative and positive way. And so we had to not only work with our colleagues to enable us to add this strand to the V&A's collecting policies, but also to find a space. We now have five showcases in a modest, part, a modest space that sits between 20th century and 20th and 21st century design which to me very much captures the kinds of changes that we're trying to bring about through rapid response, is you can see through down into our historic sculpture galleries and through the double doors you can um, see our 21st, 20th century design. Um, it's about situating these everyday, fairly modest objects, not exclusively, it's not to do that expressly, um, but some of which you and I might actually be wearing or having in our homes, with mm. our historic collections, but also with what has to date been a strong bias for the professional designer's work. And so I think the unauthored, the popular, the mass is equally important to an understanding of our everyday, the design world, and rapid response is a means, a way that's enabled us to bring those into the museum as well. In terms of rapid response collecting and how we've undertaken displaying these objects, so rapid can be understood in two ways. For us, it's about saying, this object is timely now, let's try and put it on display within a week. In museum terms, that's pretty rapid. It's not about collecting lots of things at a very fast pace. Um, it's about the response to an incident being quick. 
And to make that possible, the design of the galleries is, or the gallery, I should better say, is um, quite straightforward. Everything is magnetized, so we print our labels and our texts, our pictures directly onto magnetic paper. So again, we can do it all ourselves as quickly as possible, and it's a modular system. So in terms of what we've acquired and how... The other thing I should say is that it, the labels in the text that we put alongside the objects, we explain why we think this object is interesting and relevant to a design discourse today, but also the reasons for bringing it into the institution at a given point in time. The dates at the top explain when the, music, the object entered the museum. And just to rattle through a number of the acquisitions we've made, you will see a set of KT Perry-endorsed eyelashes. But for us, they're firstly an incredible piece of craftsmanship. Each of those eyelashes is a set of individually knotted strands of human hair. The women in Indonesia who make those are trained over a period of six months. So there's a craft skill. Fashion, makeup, beauty products are part of what the V&A holds already. But for us, they're as important because they are a brilliant way to look at globalised manufacture. This product connects a very anonymous woman earning a minimum wage, a piece rate wage, in Indonesia with the most followed person on Twitter. It's an immediately recognisable image to a great number of our visitors, and it's through that point of recognition that we can begin to look at issues and ideas that might otherwise be a little abstract. Lufsig, who became an object of political protest in Hong Kong in December 2013. He is a wolf. The governor of um, Hong Kong, C.Y. Young, is considered by some to be wolf-like because he is favouring the interests of mainland China over those of his local constituency. His, the name for his character is very similar to that for a wolf. That already brings us tighter and closer together, but named the object Lufsig. Transliterated into Chinese, in Mandarin it's fairly innocuous, but in Cantonese, which is the language more spoken in Hong Kong, it's very similar to your mother's genitalia. So in throwing that object, it became a very um, potent symbol of discontent. Within days, this object, this toy, had sold out across Hong Kong. Taiwan also, but, and many in mainland China. Buying this was a sign that you felt in a similar way to those who were um, protesting. We bought this in Wembley, and it was interesting to note that there were actually people there. I mean, of course, we have a very strong connection with Hong Kong here. So we acquired that object and put it into the collections. Of course, you can think about this. It comes back to speaking about how these objects sit within our wider collection. Inspired by Little Red Riding Hood, made in Asia, children's fairy tales. We have the Museum of Childhood. This is a product that's part of their um, campaign for education, UNESCO campaign for education. So there are multiple narratives around which you can tell stories with this object and how it relates to our wider collections. But for rapid response, the moment that it was of interest to us was as a piece of political design. And it was rather... For me, it was actually quite moving. I don't mean to over-egg it. But uh, we had, um, in this last year, we came across a couple who was in the rapid response collecting space in the museum, and they were taking pictures of themselves next to Lufsig. And uh, we asked them quite carefully, and they said, we've been here for a number of hours, but this is the only thing that we've taken pictures of ourselves next to. And it was a sense of a recognition of their story being told within the, within the museum. And for me, that was one of the ways in which rapid response is having a, an impact. 
Um, I'm just going to rattle through a series of our objects. These are a very London-focused acquisition. I noticed there are some similar pieces of kit on the building outside as I walked in. They are architectural spikes or anti-skateboarding studs in the uh, correct term, but they became, again, a point of considerable discussion uh, when there was a Twitter post about these being anti-homeless spikes. There was a set of flats in south of the river where a homeless person had taken to ha taking shelter overnight, and within a few weeks, these spikes had been put um, in place. And of course, ironwork, metalwork, we have much of that in the museum, and this idea of using it to control public space is not new. But in a moment of austerity, this securitization of our cities, a contestation of what the public space is or who our publics are, became very important and interesting to us. And that's what motivated this acquisition. And again, one of the things that I hope... now It's interesting, I'm talking about this now that we're two years in, into our thinking and a year and a half just under into our acquiring. We are going to be putting these objects back on display later this year for an exhibition about public space, civics, politics, democracy. And so again, it's about how our objects are not just interesting at one point in time, but how, like all our objects, they are, well, I hope most of our objects, continuing to have meaning. E-cigarettes, again, they launched, they were the first big tobacco company to enter the e-cigarette market in the UK, which is why we acquired these. But that said, they were also the first to broadcast an um, ad on television. It was February last year um, about smoking, and that was near 50 years after tobacco advertising on TV had been banned. So again, they are still a very contested object. In terms of product design, they are one of the most used, current, popular, new types of design that we see every day all around us. They're interesting, of course, to me because they are electronics. They're made in Shenzhen in the same place that your mobile phone would be as well. It's just that we use these for a different purpose. Whether they are a cessation aid or a thing that normalizes Smoking is, of course, one of those discussions that we can have around this object. This is the Kone Ultra Rope, which is a carbon fiber lift hoisting mechanism or a lift cable. There isn't really a term yet for this material innovation, but um, it has the potential for a lift to go 1,000 meters. Currently, our lifts... I'm not a lift expert. I haven't been in that many tall buildings. But about 500 meters is the maximum because of the weight of the machinery and the cabling prevents lifts from going higher. So in tall buildings, you have lots of transfer floors, but also time is spent going up and down. This has the potential to change our cityscapes. We're a rapidly urbanizing world. Um, not only can you gain more income from your floors, but also speed is more efficient. So again, it's an object that can begin to tell us about how we might live in the future, but it's one that's already on the market. It's not speculative in any sense. A virtual reality headset, virtual reality has been a subject of desire and experimentation for a very many number of years, but it was the acquisition by Facebook that made virtual reality more of a reality. And again, I think it's something that you will see up to a much greater extent in our everyday lives. Um, it's also about taking technology that's developed in the gaming environment into a much wider social and commercial context. We at the museum are working toward a video games exhibition. And again, there are not further overlaps as to how our objects speak across our museum's actions.
This is a thermostat. You may have seen a quite widespread campaign on the tube for, it's an internet-connected device that learns your habits, checks the weather, and therefore reduces your energy bills, as they would say to you. Um, I don't doubt that that is the case, but it's also interesting that it's a product developed by a designer, so it's a kind of hardware aesthetic of a particular kind. It's the internet of things for the first time, having a reality in our homes, and it's a set of domestic data that this object can bring together, and there are questions around that, or around all of those subjects, that again we find to be interesting and relevant to today's. This is an object that you could consider to be the future of work, the wearable device, wearable tech, I think in your 2015 predictions that you've all been reading over the last few days, wearable tech, wearable gadgets will be something that will play an ever greater role. Um, but it's still a slightly future forward or early adopter type dynamic, um, and it's always cast as that. But actually it's a working reality for thousands of people in the UK, but also worldwide. This is a computer that if you were working in a dark supermarket or a online retailer's warehouse that you would be wearing to scan and register your every task. It then measures your efficiency, your productivity, time spent being active and not, but also it will immediately tell you if you've made a mistake. It's very efficient. It means that you and I can have our next day deliveries, but it also has much wider implications. It's a computerized system which is in charge of the shifts and each of your next jobs and how you come to that from an ideological or an intellectual perspective as opposed to just one of efficiency. Is again, those are subjects that we think are important, labor, work, they are part of how we live together. And again, something like this can talk about those subjects in a very direct way. It's an object that came to our attention because a island-based worker said that he and his colleagues had been fired on the basis of not being efficient enough from data derived from such a, a unit. I think these types of discussions are ones that we will see to a much greater extent. I did notice that Fitbit, which is a fitness tracker, um, Fitbit data was being used in a court case in Canada about how mobility had been lost post-accident. And so again, it's a shifting um, landscape as to how quantified data is um, going to impact on our every day. Just to rattle through a bit further, because then we can get a bit more discursive, this is the other very early object around which our ideas for rapid response collecting crystallized. It's a pair of cargo pants. Um, so the Rana Plaza factory collapsed in Dakar in Bangladesh in April last year. We are the national collection of fashion and textiles. This was the most significant disaster in the garment industry of recent times. We felt that we should be in a position to be able to speak to that subject through our collections. We followed the story extremely carefully and um, noted that in the press immediately after, many of our high street brands, the labels for products were visible across um, in the rubble. So we did some research, took those photographs, and went and bought a pair of jeans, which to the best of our understanding were made at the Rana Plaza. Um, of course, being curators and being very interested in provenance, we wrote to ask, is this correct, our assumption that this visual match means that these objects are made in this factory? And they wrote back in a very firm, polite way to say that this is proprietary information that we don't disclose. Completely reasonable. 
we went to Labour Behind the Label, War on Want, the Bangladeshi Garment Workers Association, all to try and find out whether these jeans were made in that particular factory. Every garment that we buy that is machine-made at scale has a seven-digit or more number, which it's a distributed system, but can use that number to trace back to where that garment is made. The garment factory can't tell you who they've made it for necessarily because there are people in between. Interestingly enough, to cut this longer story short, um, we had this pair of grey jeans that we thought was correct. Six, eight months later, we're press releasing rapid response that the gallery, the display, is now going to open, and uh, the jeans were included in that release. Primark immediately got in touch and said those jeans are made in Pakistan, which at first was like, oh, this, this, this is one of the objects around which we have structured um, this new strand of collecting, and we haven't even opened the gallery, and uh, there, is a, there is a challenge to that. But what came about was a, a fantastically collaborative relationship where we worked with them to secure this pair of trousers. Um, even they, which I think is so interesting, could not secure a garment made in that factory for us. I mean, of course, it was quite a number of months later. Um, what happens to those garments as soon as this... I mean, it was fascinating for me to learn that if those garments that were made at that factory were taken off the shop floor and repurposed, either through secondary sale or being made into other products like sofa stuffing. And there were all these reasons as to why, actually, we would never have been able to buy that pair of jeans. But again, it's those kinds of stories and narratives that we can tell around these objects that become so interesting to us. Let's just rattle through. Um, Flappy Bird... It's a game that many of you may have played, may have been very frustrated by. It's the museum's first mobile app, and it's also one that became very talked about because the designer closed, took the game down from the stores on the basis that he was receiving death threats because it was so addictive. This is a set of shoes that, to us, signal world economic change. They are known as the Nudes Collection. They're designed by Christian Louboutin, but they're in five shades of skin tone ethically diverse skin tone. Um, of course, still very much in the fashion context, nude is understood as a particular colour, but it's actually a description of Caucasian skin. Here you have a demonstration of how there are women of more significant incomes across the globe who can now afford shoes of this type. And to me, that's what's so interesting. And we've also acquired the shop mannequin arms on that basis because... The beauty of this shoe is that it's a colour match, skin tone match, but in many markets where these shoes are sold, exposing parts of the female body is taboo, culturally taboo. So this was the design mechanism that the shop window display team came to to be able to show those colour matches. And for us, again, that enhances and broadens the story of those shoes. The Research Institute, a set of three female scientists, in the company's, Danish company's 82-year history, which showed women in a professional setting that was not gendered. The Lego Academics Twitter feed brilliantly brings home some of the reasons that these objects are interesting. So gendered toys has been much in discussion of late. Role models for young women, but also women entering STEM careers, so women into the sciences. Um, the figurines are used by the team behind Lego Academics to explore the trials and tribulations of academic life, irrespective of whether they are men or women, and they have 40,000 plus, 40, plus followers. So again, this is an object that can speak to bigger subjects, but in terms of its design, 
it's crowdsourced. It's the first time LEGO has crowdsourced the designs of its figurine sets. Um, it's designed by a geoscientist based in Stockholm. It relates to the collections in the Museum of Childhood, which in terms of LEGO stretch back to the mid-20th century. So again, it's about how we build these narratives around objects. Tom of Finland, a countercultural figure, actually born in the 19... I think it's 1920. I didn't realise he was quite so old, but um, so homoerotic illustrations that were initially part of a sports magazine um, environment. Not necessarily recognised early on, but now a first-day cover for the Finnish Postal Service. Interesting and a shift in and of itself, but the YLE, which is the Finnish broadcaster, so the equivalent of the BBC, then took it upon themselves to send letters with these stamps to places in the world where gay rights are at, at, at contest. And so we've also acquired the letter that was sent to St. Petersburg because it was one of the politicians in St. Petersburg who began the change in attitude and legislation in Russia towards gay rights, which have now been rolled out across um, the country. And interestingly enough, just as we were putting these on display, this very same politician was saying that the Russian Postal Service should destroy any letters that enter the country with these stamps. And again, they're interesting, Tom of Finland. We have other Tom of Finland examples in our collections, but there are much, as you can see, much broader and wider ideas and subjects that we can talk about through those stamps. This is one of our, again, more recent acquisitions, actually second to last. It's um, two umbrellas that were used in the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong. We have quite good links in Hong Kong. Of course, the museum has also got its Disobedient Objects exhibition at the moment, which is about design and protest, design for social change. Uh, the thing that was so interesting to me, and I've learned a lot with this object, was it was clear that umbrella would be of interest to us because it they were used because it was raining heavily it meant you could protest for longer but they're also a means of protecting yourself from tear gas um, so its design made that object functional it then became the symbol of those protests you can see a little figure here i'm going to be quick a uh, little figure hk we so we asked our contacts in hong kong to secure these umbrellas for us he he's called king which i really like sent these two umbrellas to us and he knew that they were interesting but he then went back and found out who had put this HK symbol on on these umbrellas and it turns out there was a flash mob organised two days after the first use of tear gas whereby two young professionals working in advertising got together a group of their colleagues to make 500 umbrellas and these are two of those. Those 500 were then used to create a short video that they hoped would attach, attract an international audience to their political concerns. And we only learnt about that afterwards, but it, to me it makes those objects within the V&A even more interesting because it, we are the international context that they were seeking. Um, so to come to the politics of things, um, we've had, when we opened in July, our five showcases with 12 objects, we've had, since then, we've had an incredible amount of press, um, which has been fantastic, really brilliant. And I think that's in part because it's about a challenge to what a museum is, what a museum is for, particularly in terms of the design museum. But it's also thinking again about what the role of the curator might be. That's not to say that all of the press coverage has been positive. I like this one in particular. Um, the Sunday Times called us out um, for collecting controversies. 
made a number of our collaborators intensely nervous. Of course, rapid response collecting is by no means new in the sense of bringing objects that have meaning beyond that intended by the designers into a museum context. But it is n quite new in terms of the context in which we are doing it, which is partly why for us it's interesting, I hope for others too. Um, but the idea that we were bringing everyday genes into the hallowed halls of the V&A was problematic. But other collaborators, they became intensely nervous. And it's the first time in my career, but also speaking to other colleagues who are much more experienced than I am, where I've consistently been asked whether our labels have been legaled. And I thought that was a very interesting question because, again, it brings to mind what others understand museums to be for, that it's, in a very simple terms for some, that it's the recognition of good design, it's the ascension of quality into an institution. Clearly, rapid response is about that, but it's about many other things also, or not about that. And that's partly what this article was picking up. To come back to some of those questions, this is how we displayed, we've just taken them off display, the trousers. Um, for us, it's about putting facts on the table. It's not about editorializing. Of course, the choice of objects we make and how they come together to tell a wider story inevitably has motivations and a particular perspective. But when we treat each of these objects, it's a facts-based approach. And our visitors all come with different perspectives. And it's for them to leave once their imagination has set flight with their own and diverse opinions. It was a, a case that was difficult to make prior to opening the gallery, but I think now that we've got it, it's established and people understand what it's for, it's an easier case to make, though I'm sure others would still kind of take us on on that front, and I'm happy to talk that through more. Just to think about, so this is collecting, bringing things into the museum at a particular time. This is part of an accelerator pedal for a car. This was an object I really wanted to secure for rapid response, but I couldn't get my hands on it physically. So this object came to my attention and to a wider press attention because it was found that parts of this accelerator pedal, which is made in Shenzhen, used counterfeit DuPont plastics. There was no sense of whether that made it more or less safe, but that knowledge meant that the manufacturer had to recall 17,000 cars. For me, this is a marquee brand that has a particular means of branding itself as very British quality luxury you counterpose that with the fact that they're making things in the manufactory of the world, Shenzhen. And you, again, can talk about a breadth of subjects and contextualise design. I often wonder, thinking back now, whether if I approached them now, with our gallery being open, whether they might be more willing or accommodating to the request. Um, it also tells you about, if you want to, China is an avid... I mean, we all will be looking at China ever more, but um, the question of fake, real, counterfeit. It has a very different dynamic in China. And again, you can begin to talk about those subjects through this object. This is another that um, flitted through our fingers. I think many of you have children will recognize um, Merida. She's the lead character in the animated film Brave when it was made. And the designer was very clear that she wanted to create a strong role model for girls. She, this woman, or this girl, young female, has a a weapon, she's sassy. When um, Merida was to ascend into the Hall of Princesses and she was redesigned, and I think you can see that she's a much more sexualized figure. A petition was launched, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people signed it, and the design was reversed. 
So this is, again, another way of looking at some of the subjects that you might already have thought through. But here we actually didn't know what to collect. And part of rapid response has been this lesson learned about having to go from the object out rather than from the story in. And it bears thinking about that we are a design museum. We go from the objects. Objects are the way we talk about the world. And this, I mean, you could have gone for some of the original designs, but actually then access through to Disney to get the other, the counterpart, might have been quite challenging. But without a firm idea of what we wanted to collect, that approach was quite hard to make. The thing that's been great about rapid response since we've opened is that the dialogue that we hope to have around the objects has also, I think through our own encouragement, but also quite naturally, become one of suggesting objects. The Cooper Hewitt, a colleague there, suggested this brick. It's a brick from the compound in which Bin Laden was housed when he was shot, and that was suggested as an object of rapid response collecting. And it's one of those ones that, to me, teases out the fine line between what we do, which we consider to be design and architecture, as separate from social history. There is a limited design narrative in this object that can tell you about those wider political, social, economic questions. And so we're still learning. I'm not saying we've got it right, but it's through trial and error that we are ever more honing how we say yes and no to objects or take forward our suggestions. We discuss them over our open office um, on a fairly regular basis, and then we do have to get approval from senior staff before an acquisition is made. Another recent suggestion or an idea that came through, this is Malala Yousaf's uniform, which was put on display at the Nobel Centre when she received her award, her prize. And again, for me, a very, very compelling object, but not one that can tell us about the world through design. Again, we've tried to aggregate social media around what we're up to and get suggestions from others. And again, this is beginning to pick up, but suggestions like collecting the cupcakes from the Scottish referendum, which said yes and no, and were used as a straw poll for which way the vote would go, are beyond what we can do. But we very much like the idea that people feel that they can have a voice, that the public's expertise is as valuable and important as ours. Lots of student work has happened around rapid response um, this is the Rietveld Academy in Amsterdam, the Royal College as well. And it's really to see what you've been working on and having ideas around go out into the world and be reinterpreted is really brilliant. And the idea that we... I work with product design, and one of the things that is interesting but also at times frustrating is that so many people understand that to be the next beautiful thing for your home. But actually, I think designers need to have a more broader understanding of what the world is and the objects that they are putting into it. And I think rapid response is one of those means of doing that. And to see what we're up to having an impact in design education is, for me, something that's quite special. Just very quickly, um, so rapid response didn't materialise into a gallery immediately. We had a fantastic opportunity to try it out. Again, this question of trial and error. Um, we partook in the Shenzhen, Hong Kong Shenzhen Biennial of Architecture and Urbanism, and we went there and asked those living in the city to suggest objects of design that they felt could tell us a contemporary story about Shenzhen. It's a city of between 16 and 18 million that's grown up over 35 years. It's the first in mainland China to open up to the wider world. Um, and we had this, we created a portrait of the city through these 23 objects, 10 of which are now at the V&A in the V&A collections, but again, it's about how actually rapid response in that instance was a, a means of trying a new mode of operation elsewhere, 
we created the event by making the exhibition as opposed to having a moment in time when those objects were particularly timely. And those are shifts. And we're beginning to think again about what we can do next and how we continue with rapid response. And I'd be curious and interested to hear what your thoughts might be on that. And just to say the other way that we like to look at rapid response, but also the broader activities of the contemporary team, is through this lens of design and public life, which I think you may have heard me say in a few ways numerous times while speaking. Anyway, that's me. Um, I hope that's been of some interest to you. This talk was recorded on the 1st of December 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.